Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on another bright day here in the capital city as once again we put the topic of leadership under the spotlight. My name is Scott Challoner and I'm delighted to be joined on today's programme by Margaret Todd, MBE. Margaret is the founder of the Lord Whiskey Sanctuary Fund, a sanctuary for animals who have been injured, abused or become homeless, headquartered in Kent. Margaret, very warm welcome to you and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us this afternoon. Great pleasure. A real pleasure having you on the air with us as well, Margaret. Now, um, the purpose of this discussion is to really establish your take on leadership. And I think it's fair to say, isn't it, that it's really been put to the test at the moment with the emergence of COVID-19, no less, and different business leaders and leaders of organisations, governments having to feel their way through what ultimately is an unprecedented crisis. So for somebody like yourself, how has it been trying to get through the last few weeks in the way of the fund? Well, it has been quite um, challenging, to say the least. <laughs> um, but we are fortunate enough to um, have very good supporters. And also, um, we do have reserves, which for the time being, we can um, draw on um, in the hopes that um, the situation improves um, sooner rather than later, because obviously, um, we have got plans for the future and we don't want to see our reserves disappear, so we can't um, carry on with our plans. Um, but all in all, um, we are coping. And how has it been from a people management point of view um, with staff and how have they taken to uh, the uh, the situation? Because I can imagine from a leadership perspective, there's been one or two sort of quite difficult conversations that have had to be had to maybe provide some reassurance, even though there's so much uncertainty and not a lot of information at times. Well, unfortunately, in this situation, I mean, none of us um, can really see the future, can we? It's... Uh, We've just got to do the best we can and, uh, you know, hope we get through it all. You know, um, obviously we've been hit hard because we um, have tea rooms, which is a sort of, not only a tea rooms, but it's a meeting place for um, supporters and that. And that's, you know, had to be closed. Um, but we hope to open that now um, on July the 4th and it's all being decorated and refitted out. Um, so we hope that, that will bring lots of customers back. Um, our charity shop also, um, which we have to pay rent for, that's um, been closed as well, but that's opened up today. And uh, our veterinary clinics are now up and running, so things are looking a little bit brighter. It's really positive to hear that things are starting to um, open up again. Um, in the meantime, however, Margaret, has it been quite a challenge for yourselves keeping the communication channels open remotely, or is that something that you feel that you've sort of adapted to reasonably well? I'm sorry, I didn't hear that last question. I'm sorry. So keeping the communication channels open at the fund um, remotely, given that we've all, of course, had to endure closures and we've been working from home in a lot of cases, has that been quite a challenge for you or do you think uh, that you've well, yes, quite well? Well, yes, it has, because obviously um, because of the sanctuary, there's animals there that need, um, you know, hands-on. And um, so um, we've been very fortunate. We've been allowed to have all our key workers come in. So, um, And we've also uh, kept everybody... Um, you know, in work at the sanctuary, which is nice because we've got a very good team here mm. and uh, they all love their job and um, we don't want to lose any of them. So we've kept them all quite busy. And there's been a great deal of debate about clarity and transparency over the government's leadership of the crisis, um, of course, um, a great deal of debate. Um, 
that sort of thing, um, of course, transparency, clarity, very important from a leadership point of view. And with regards to the guidance and what's been expected of you thus far through the pandemic and what is going to continue to be expected of you as you begin to reopen things, are you satisfied, Margaret, that you are fully aware of what's expected and that that's clear? Or have the guidelines been a little bit difficult to interpret? I, I think all in all, you know, we have kept up with what's um, what's going on, you know, and uh, hopefully we will get through it all. All right. Um, and in terms of the uh, the future for, of course, your industry um, as a whole, what do you think the long term effect of the pandemic is going to be on sanctuaries and charity charitable organisations such as yourself? Well, well, it's very difficult really to say, but um, what we are worried about is that. Um, Lots of people now are going out and buying puppies and taking their animals. Um, and I think that when they go back to work, um, then we're going to get lots of animals um, being made homeless. And also, if people aren't in work, um, then are they going to be able to afford to look after those animals um, with vet's bills and that sort of thing? So that side of it is quite worrying. Um, regarding you know donations and that sort of thing, um, we just hope that people will still have money to give to charities and um, also they don't have to um, get rid of their houses and they can't leave legacies and that sort of thing because we do rely on, you know, legacies mm. uh, to continue our work. You know, we have over 200 animals here and we run three veterinary clinics for people of low income, which obviously costs quite a lot of money. Of course, from the income point of view, there are a few concerns, of course, given the impact that it's going to have on household um, incomes and therefore the amount that they can afford to give away to charitable organisations like yourselves. Um, But do you think, um, as you've said there, that there is perhaps going to be almost a spike in demand for some of your services when things begin to open up again because of those reasons that you've just outlined? Yes, we just hope that um, people will be able to continue to support us. Uh, The other thing from the veterinary point of view as well, uh, we're rather disappointed that they are cutting down on places for veterinary students. Um, and as it is, we struggle to find enough vets ourselves and other practices are in the same situation. Um, and that's quite worrying as well. I suppose from a recruitment point of view, that's one concern. But also there's the looming um, end of the transition period for the post-Brexit situation as well isn't there so that again the new immigration bill of course coming into force at the beginning of next year that's going to pose a whole new issue for recruitment within organizations businesses as well isn't it and bringing in skilled staff from uh, overseas yes yeah that can be quite you know worrying it's just something that we'll have to deal with as best as we can when we get there Exactly, of course. It's one of those issues that we will have to address as soon as um, it does uh, come to that stage. Um, and do you think that perhaps um, there's a role for the uh, the Royal College um, to play in that uh, sort of side of things as well, in maybe making the profession a little bit more accessible to um, young, um, aspiring uh, veterinary surgeons? Um, well, I don't know whether it is the Royal College or whether it's just that there's just not enough places at university mm. for you know people that want to um, become vets. 
It's an interesting problem and it's certainly going to be something that's cast into the limelight a lot more as we move into the next uh, few uh, weeks and months uh, for definite. If we backtrack now, uh, Margaret, of course, working in the uh, the charitable sector, I can imagine you've been greatly inspired by some of the work that you've seen. But what I was interested to understand is who have been some of the big inspirations and influences on you throughout your career as you have developed? And if there's no one individual that sticks out, perhaps maybe some of the experiences that have had a profound impact on you. I'm sorry, I, I just didn't catch that. <laughs> All right, I'll repeat the question. So I was interested to understand, given that you work in the charitable sector, and I can imagine you've seen a lot of inspiring things in your time, as to yes. maybe who have been some of the big inspirational individuals who've had an impact on you throughout your career. And if there's no individual that sticks out in mind, maybe some of the big experiences that you've had that have had an influence on you. Yeah, uh, my first vet, um, Peter Hamblin, I got to know when... I think I was about 14 or 15, and um, my parents didn't want me to work with animals because um, that was a long time ago now, and it wasn't really recognised as a very good um, career to take up. But this uh, particular vet um, gave me so much um, encouragement, um, and I think without him I wouldn't be where I am now. And also vets that I've had, um, you know, working for me since then, and uh, I've been very, very fortunate. You know, I've met some wonderful people from all walks of life um, that have all played a big part in it, you know. I think it's a stark reminder, isn't it, from those examples that some of the most influential, almost leaders out there, if you will, can be the people who are closest to us, can't they? Such as mentors, such as colleagues, teachers, friends. And that's important to remember because I think we're tempted when we think of leadership in general in this country, aren't we, Margaret, to think of people who are in the public eye, such as people associated with politics and sports and celebrity, whereas it doesn't necessarily take that to be an influential leader or person, does it? Oh, no, I think it's... um it's just really, I suppose, if you're a, you you meet the right, um, you know, sort of people and people that share your interests and want to um, to learn and work with you. And based upon the experience that you've accumulated in a leadership position yourself at the Lord Whiskey Sanctuary Fund, if you were to actually give some advice to somebody who was about to start their first day in a leadership role within an organisation or a business, what sort of advice would you give them? Um, I think follow your dreams, you know, and uh, you'll get there in the end. (laughs) I think that's what all people can do, really, of course. I mean, they have to be driven by a certain uh, motivation and a certain dream, exactly, and be able to follow that and execute it for sure. Don't give up. If you want something to happen, you know, go for it. And uh, normally, you know, you'll get there, hopefully. Exactly and I right. think everyone's facing, um, you know, a big challenge at the moment, you know, to uh, get everything up and running again. But um, I'm sure the British spirit, you know, in a year's time, hopefully everyone will be in a better place. It certainly has, hasn't it, captured a sense of national unity and spirit uh, during this uh, really difficult period. And we've seen some incredible stories from the front line and elsewhere of people really coming together and bringing out the best in themselves in times of adversity, for sure. Um, If we do think about now what the future holds uh, for yourself and for the Lord Whiskey Sanctuary Fund specifically, Margaret, um, what do you envision for the next year as we navigate COVID-19 and hopefully emerge from the pandemic and look toward the long term under the new normal? Well, I think the next year is going to be very, very difficult, and obviously, um, you know, decisions will have to be made. Um, 
you know, our plans have been to open a much better and modern um, veterinary clinic because that was always been one of my dreams, you know, to help animals donors um, can't afford to look after. Um, that's got to be put on hold. We've got to be sensible. I mean, you know, what we've got is adequate and we're helping well, about 100 animals a week, I suppose. Um, and I just, we've just got to wait and see what the um, future holds. Um, I think we've got to look at different ways of um, fundraising. Um, all our fundraising you know, events this year have obviously been cancelled. Um, but I think we've got to sort of think of you know, new ways, perhaps eBay and things like that, to try to um, get an income. And just hope that um, the public are on supporting us. Let's certainly hope so, uh, for sure, uh, Margaret. And I think, you know, um, given how we can, of course, speculate about what the future holds, but of course, we can't really discuss it properly um, until we actually understand what's going to unfold. I think it would be fantastic to catch up in the uh, the next few months and just see exactly what has changed as we move through the uh, the pandemic situation and begin to adjust to uh, what that new normal is like. And hopefully there'll be some good news to share at that point in time as well. That's right. Let's, um, you know, let's just all hold that thought in our heads, you know, and hopefully uh, in a year's time we'll be in a better place. Yes, let's certainly hope so. Um, it's a shame we're just about out of time on today's programme. I'm sure, of course, we could talk about uh, the issue long into the uh, the afternoon. Um, but Margaret, I've got to say, it's been a real pleasure having you on the uh, the programme with us uh, this afternoon. And um, I've thoroughly, of course, enjoyed the experience. Um, and do take care and do stay safe as well going forward um, in the meantime, because we're certainly not out of the woods with this yet, even though things are slowly but surely starting to reopen as normal. Thank you very much. That was Margaret Todd, MBE speaking, the founder of the Lord Whiskey Sanctuary Fund. Coming up next on the programme today, I'll be handing over to Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with Lord Blunkett. Lord Blunkett is an active member of the House of Lords, a former Labour MP and Secretary of State, and the chairman of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. Lord Blunkett rose to prominence to become one of the most notable politicians of his generation, holding various positions in the cabinet of then Prime Minister Tony Blair, including that of Education Secretary, and serving as the MP for his Sheffield, Brightside and Hillsborough constituency for 28 years. He was elevated to the House of Lords in August 2015, anointed Baron Blunkett of Brightside and Hillsborough. And I hope you enjoy listening just as much as Matthew enjoyed speaking with him. That is coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, uh, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help, I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected Mm -hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10,000 or 25,000, all all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being. 
and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who, who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world. And being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term uh, effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative. They're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, Mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and product productivity and, and the production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and Mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who have Mm. something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a a good outcome from knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from obviously government itself. And there's been ups and downs with the Prime Minister's uh, severe illness. But all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen seen the same on the international scene for Mm. all kinds of reasons. 
but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, a service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, um, the food chain and the like, uh, but also, I think, in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm. But actually, I think there is a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that, that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I, I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We, we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. But as someone who's uh, had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent to the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and mm. consent that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right, and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear right. advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons, because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they 
you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, the health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with, watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy. I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, yeah. it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London. But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. 
Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was part, pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. But we did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real, on the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university there had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would, people criticised the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You you can you can sponsor reports. And this is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business. What will happen if um, there's a cyber attack? What happens if there's an energy shutdown? These kind of things you you can look at. But you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations? that we don't have a vaccine for, mm-hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the, for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. But very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm-hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food, a lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems, if that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think, again, thinking of... Thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope. And without, uh, obviously, we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without creating even more anxiety. We can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about 
is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, now, it, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be to prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to, to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges. And they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives, for a variety of reasons, are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated, that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months, we, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002 when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm -hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer 
where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from the second week in May on the side of the hawks in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back. Perhaps, you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year and the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government and the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent uh, professional lawyer who as Director of Public Prosecutions led the service well uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm-hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made Shadow Foreign Secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the the disaffected uh, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition more importantly, will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from '97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty. 
and we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role. And that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them, above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Secure is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning. Uh, what's your response uh, to that report, and what does Secure need to do in response? Well, there are two reports. One which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission, uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, uh, Mr. Starmer, set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us, and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all of us, all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Secure needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Secure Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed as it did in the 1980s and early 90s to become the electable government with the greatest majority and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Secure has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, 
uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, um, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from mm-hmm. each other, that is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage, have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Blunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.